Welcome to This Week, Next Week from Group M. I'm Brian Weezer. And I'm Kate Scott Dawkins. And we are in the thick of this year, next year preparations. This is this is like, uh, it's not our Super Bowl. It's our, I don't know. What is this? What is this week for us? I know, something big that happens twice a year, whatever that is. <laughs> it's just all hands on deck. It's just concentrated work. It's just, and we're going deep, deep, deep deep into understanding the world because again just to just to tease it within a very short period of time the world will see our new formal expectations for advertising growth we're not going to tease what that number is right now and how that's changed specifically but um but there is lots of interesting stuff uh bubbling up and and kate i know as you've been talking with our colleagues around the world um you found some interesting little tidbits that might surprise other people too yeah, well, some some things very topical that are happening right now. Um, you know, the Philippines just had an election, and so what we're hearing from our colleagues there is how um, how much of a factor social media was, and how that's going to play into some of their numbers for for this year. Um, that's despite Google having said they weren't going to run political ads, but you know, digital is very much um, you know saw a role in their recent elections. Um, and then something from several years back, also in the APAC region, talking to our colleagues in um, Thailand about just when we're looking at, you know, when we're looking at these files, we're looking at uh, cell by cell, say what digital ad revenue was across the last uh, 20 years. And where we see fluctuations, that's where we like to dig in and make sure that we're we're getting the the story as to why those fluctuations are occurring. Um, and you know, in in Thailand, they had the death of their king, um, you know, late in 2017, late in 2016, excuse me. Um, and so we see basically fluctuations there around. Um, they have a period of mourning, and that comes with some time of a ban basically on on celebrations and so what we see there is um declines around advertising especially because of the the entertainment and um you know bars and, and nightclubs shutting down basically as an well. interesting contrast with what we see in the uk right now we're on the queen's jubilee where you you certainly uh would see a lot of brands wanting to um, participate if you will and probably see uh, it won't be a material impact i'm sure on the overall numbers but it's uh, it's an interesting contrast in how different markets around the world uh, um, approach um royal royal events yes exactly so those are just a couple of the things that we're digging into as we get into the very nitty-gritty of our our numbers indeed um and the, you know i think the political advertising issue um uh, is also interesting you know in our data we we, we usually try to exclude uh uh, you know, political advertising from the U the U.S. political advertising data from our overall um, underlying growth rates because it's so distorting. But it does um, ignore sort of that that in places like the Philippines and uh, places like uh, Colombia as well, um, political advertising can be you know, somewhat significant. Um, the social media angle is also still worth noting and keeping in mind. I've certainly seen some headlines about the the role of TikTok in in the Colombian elections. And um, I mean, it is interesting that, you know, social media is only becoming more important as a factor in driving um, in, in driving electoral uh, outcomes around the world. Speaking of social media, um, one of the biggest news items of the past week was what happened with um, Sheryl Sandberg and uh, announcing she's leaving Meta. Um, Kate, what, what's your top of mind take on this? 
Um, she was there a, a really long time. So I guess in that sense, it's not entirely surprising. I mean, it was probably going to happen at some point. Um, and she certainly was successful in what she set out to do or, or why Zuckerberg talked about bringing her on in terms of um, helping monetization and growing an ads business there. Very successful now. Um, but we, you know, certainly also saw her weather plenty of um, issues at the company between Cambridge Analytica and, you know, election misinformation and, and more recently um, things that the Wall Street Journal is reporting on around investigations into um, you know, her use of company resources for more personal matters. Yeah, well, I, I think it's, it's something where um, there, there's good and bad, uh, undoubtedly, um, to look back at uh, at the legacy. But I, I also, you know, and, and I was certainly known as something of a Facebook critic uh, as a, an analyst. Uh, but, you know, I was even handed, I think, in my criticism and compliments. I, I think it's safe to say, though, that, um, you know, if, if, so there's a saying about success having a thousand fathers or mothers and uh, failure only having, you know, one or two. I, it, in the same way that it's equally, it probably is reasonable to say that she probably was disproportionately responsible for the orientation of the business around becoming a business back in 2008 2009 um they're so small then and you, you legitimately could say well she built that organization um i think when it comes to the failures um that uh facebook went through in the 2010s um really leading up to some of the problems that we saw i mean you can argue that failure has many many um uh, people involved. It's really hard to isolate uh, down to a handful of people. Um, but I mean, of course, there are certain, um, you know, there's absolutely uh, going to be a mixed legacy when it, when it comes to this. But I think that the main thing that we're trying to think about is what does this mean going forward, right? Um, the issue at hand that really everyone should take from this is that, all right, Sandberg has been, you know, uh, less uh the number two the last few years um and and so the business as it is is really mark zuckerberg's business unambiguously mark zuckerberg's business um there are new people or at least there's a one of the existing executives now stepping into part of sandberg's role um does that create the opportunity for some fresh eyes maybe uh to influence how zuckerberg orients the business maybe um, it may also be that the business is just going to keep going the direction it's going, but certainly, you know, there's always opportunity to try to, you know, consistently look at how they can improve uh, the relationship with civil society, um, how they can make sure that um, they reflect the needs around brand safety uh, better than um, might otherwise have been the case, that they can make sure that, frankly, their measurement um, houses in order um and that other um just core functions are are, are meeting the needs of, of the world's largest advertisers so I mean, we saw i think a, a dip certainly in wall street's um expectations after she announced and then it's regained that at least the last i saw do you sort of with your analyst hat on do you think that reaction would have been any different if it had been someone external versus an internal promotion i don't know I think it was a bit of um it was interesting that there was a, a, a an, any reaction frankly from the stock um because it didn't feel like this was a shocking move um at all now i think you could argue that if someone high profile had come in from outside of the company you you could argue that is sort of a vote of confidence in a sense 
um, and, and that could have been viewed in a positive sense. On the other hand, I think this is ultimately pretty neutral from a, a business perspective. I think Wall Street tends to like people with degrees from Ivy League or equivalent schools and who are engineers. And, you know, a, anytime you hear um, uh, analysts say, well, they've got a great management team, um, it, it's usually a reflection of the CV more than actual knowledge of the individual's managerial capabilities, which may or may not be, um, you know, consistent with the prestige of, of the schools that those individuals went to. Right. Uh, so I, I do think that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of people who still think that having someone internally uh, is, a, is, is actually a good thing because it just means stability, which is really what Wall Street typically wants. Okay. One thing that, um, you know, I, I think came up around social media this past week that um, uh, I think probably was a bit under the radar, maybe more than it should be, was all this uh, Supreme Court rulings. Yeah, I mean, we talked about uh, the Texas bill HB 22 weeks ago, um, but obviously uh, didn't record last week, but the uh, there is an update here. So what is that yeah. looking like now? Well, you know, this is it vacating a stay. I, I get confused with my legal terms because I am no lawyer. Um, but basically, the Texas law HB 20 um, will not go into effect, um, at least right now, but it seems almost certain to be appealed. Uh, but this case paired with any appeals that follow from the uh, Florida law uh, that attempted to um, uh, basically force social media platforms to um, allow voices on the those platforms don't want and then paired with another case in ohio that attempts to make uh um social media well google in particular uh, and probably social media platforms in general uh common carriers uh is fascinating in terms of um what the implications are if we so, get to a world where you know can, where platforms are obliged to carry content that they don't want yeah let's take a minute and just um again in non-legal in terms because neither of us are lawyers, but at least explain a little bit about what the idea of a common carrier is for those who aren't familiar. Yeah, well, a common carrier is this idea that um, an entity cannot refuse service, basically, to uh, to someone. So um, if you are a FedEx or UPS or DHL, you basically have to take a package if someone wants to use your service. You can't unreasonably deny it unless there's a safety issue which i think is where some of the similarities might come up but basically the difference here is or the similarity here is that um uh the good that a google search is transporting is information and intellectual right. property so it's really interesting again i'm no lawyer and i'm sure in future podcasts we'll have actual legal experts to talk about these issues uh but the basic point is that um there is a lot of momentum uh, around this issue, around this way of thinking of uh, social media. Truly, it's it's realizing Mark Zuckerberg's dream of becoming utility. And there's a difference between a common carrier and a regulated utility. Utilities are common carriers, but not all common carriers are utilities. Uh, the implications for the world are worth noting because if the biggest platforms, which are almost all US-based, uh, apply their US-based approaches as their standard in markets around the world, unless there's a law or laws prohibiting it, prohibiting the approach the Americans take. Well, that does have implications for the rest of the world. I mean, if, I don't know that there's a better way. It feels like we're force-fitting regulation into something that, you know, was not at all designed for this purpose. Um, 
in the, in the U.S. to some extent, whereas uh, and this is the very hot takes. So <laughs> we'll see if I still feel this way later. But, you know, rather than taking a stab at writing something purpose built because social media companies and because the type of service that uh, Google or uh, Facebook or YouTube provides is, you know, new and different enough that maybe it would require its own thinking. I mean, maybe somewhat more similar to the the Digital Services or Digital Markets Act that have been sort of written from the ground up in the the EU. I mean, they might again, don't know. They probably rely on precedent in some place in some places. But um, yeah, it just it feels like a force fitting here. Maybe, but at the end of the day, unless um, unless the uh, politicians establish rules around this, then it is up to the courts, and then courts can interpret things in different ways. And and again, you know, where I might have been mistaken or not not appreciative of of how uh, legal minds might think you know the end of the day there there are examples of infringements of uh what we have as first amendment rights um where the government has um sees a societal benefit and the example there is forcing cable operators to carry um broadcast networks under the must carry uh, regime that exists um and i didn't appreciate that precedent if you will um hard to say if that's how um, you know, the, the, our system will end up uh, impacting the social platforms, but um, worth keeping an eye on. This is play. The story will play out over the course of the next couple of years. But there are also requirements of broadcast networks, say, to uh, like decency and, and other requirements, right? Whereas individual users generating content won't have the same sort of requirements that a broadcast network would in terms of what they're promoting yeah, or posting exactly. or airing. It, it, and I think there's lots of nuances and lots of differences. And and I guess at the end of the day, as, as a lawyer I did talk to about this said, I mean, understanding how courts will rule ends up coming to down to very nuanced appreciations of how um, jurists think. And it, it, it may not be necessarily uh, along partisan lines. That's the other thing, right? And, and we saw, although this might be on a procedural matter, in the Supreme Court ruling on HB 20, you had Alina Kagan, known to be more on one wing of the court, siding essentially with Clarence Thomas and uh, Justice Alito. And, and so it's not clear at all how these things will be interpreted and how they'll play out. Again, this goes... This is this is where I go uh, beyond my skis to yeah. opine on on how uh, <laughs> how this plays out. So maybe we go All back right. to stuff that we 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 can um, uh, more credibly opine on. Uh, Kate, you were looking at um, some recent earnings from large technology companies. Yeah. So we have been still, I think, as come more companies report, and as we. Um, get further into the the year, there are still reports about um, either valuations being, you know, down downgraded or, or decreased and, and other companies that haven't hit um, maybe expectations in terms of, of revenue. Um, I was looking at Xiaomi, which reported um, in the last couple of weeks um, and just looking at some of the, the figures there. I mean, I think some of this, somewhat unsurprising. So say with Xiaomi, their smartphone revenue um, was down 11%. Um, Xiaomi smartphone revenue was down 11%, uh, mostly due to fewer shipments, even though there was a higher average selling price, which again goes to what we've been talking about for quite some time around 
um, where people can't get components, they are prioritizing premium, you know, higher value or higher cost goods. Um, but we, you know, I think some of this is, is still this trend we're seeing with purchases being brought forward as you were, like big years, 2020, 2021. Um, and now, you know, with an upgrade cycle or just general e-commerce, those those sales of goods are slowing down and that's what we're seeing. And it's not that it wasn't expected, um, but it is still apparently surprising or, or causing fluctuations in terms of um, valuations in the market, it feels like. Yeah, well, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, analyst panic uh, concept that we've been talking about the last uh, several weeks, because it's it just it certainly is persisting even now. Um, you know, we, we actually did some uh, other uh, deep dives into a wide range of uh, the world's largest marketers. Uh, should we hit on that or do you want to talk more about uh, Xiaomi and any other uh, technology trends you've observed? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I have um, the composite for smartphones as a um, group, which is, you find that, I mean, still up three and a half percent in the first quarter of 2022 um, over last year. Um, but that's following on a, a full year of really double digit growth. Um and we also have gaming composite done, and that was uh, much slower growth of like 0.02%. But it was interesting. I was looking at the trends over time um, and the impact of the lockdown, where sort of right at the start of lockdown, um, gaming revenue dramatically increased right away. Like people were suddenly home. They suddenly maybe had time um and then you know looking at uh mobile handsets the the increase was later maybe as stimulus payments you know came into effect or people had their savings growing right they weren't spending on commuting and travel and, and other kinds of goods um but definitely the the gaming peak has decreased <laughs> rapidly since then um and now is being followed by mobile phones peak and so we'll get some more of those composites across um our other technology segments going forward, um, you know, TVs, uh, PCs, B2B software, and, and total technology as well. Gaming did have a good pandemic, that's, that's for sure. Um, I'll tell you which uh, category had a bad pandemic, though, uh, travel. Uh, oh, as we yeah. all know. <laughs> well, so this is the thing, right? And and so going back to this analysis of, of expectations, what we wanted to do is understand, okay, for all the concerns that are out there around um high inflation and risks of interest rate rises and i think we've made pretty clear that um we're aware of those issues but we also see a lot of underlying strength in the form of you know low unemployment in most markets um the wage gains for many maybe not all the way up to inflation everywhere but um it's savings that are pretty strong and so what we wanted to understand a bit more was well let's look at expectations among analysts for uh, trends in 2022 and how they've evolved over the next, uh, the rest of this year. Uh, so what we did is we looked at the largest marketers. We took data from Refinitiv, which is a, a terminal that financial professionals use. Uh, and we tried to look at consensus expectations among sell-side analysts uh, around what they think uh, revenues will do for the world's largest marketers. And what we did here is we found that basically expectations are pretty strong. I mean, travel in particular, right? We can see that if we look at expectations for um, you know booking in particular, uh, up a lot. Uh, maybe they're not up that much uh, over the course of this year so far for uh, Expedia, but as proxies for 
that category, at least you, you certainly see growth. Um, we can see other categories like packaged goods. Uh, expectations are actually generally up if we look at the biggest players, whether it's um, you know, L'Oreal or uh, Coca-Cola or Nestle. And it actually looks pretty good. So hold on, because this idea of sell-side analyst consensus expectations is not only a, a mouthful, but maybe also something that not everyone is uh, familiar with from a, a procedural sense, right? So what are they looking at? I mean, obviously, they're they're making recommendations to their clients, um, but how should we take this as a, an indicator, basically, of what we should be expecting for the rest of the year? This is a good question. Yes, I probably should have led with this. So, you know, every large company has dozens of sell-side analysts who publish research, who work for investment banks, who don't actually invest in stocks. They analyze stocks. Their clients are institutional investors. And in all cases, they're trying to put down what they think are their best estimates, often informed by what companies say uh, in the form of what, what's called guidance. But often also just informed by what you know they believe will generally happen based on their expert knowledge of a sector and there's games that get played uh by some companies in producing uh, those estimates but the really interesting thing is to look at what the changes are and sort of the relative numbers and there's all sorts of ways to interpret what these numbers actually mean so if you have 40 analysts covering a given package goods company if they all had a uh, guidance sorry if they all had forecasts for revenue growth of four percent and then collectively, they end up with a forecast of, say, 6 or 7% on average. That's significant. That means that expectations are collectively going up. Now, you'll hear terms of something called whisper numbers. What whisper numbers are, are what the buy side really believes will happen, right? The sell side publishes a number because they want to, uh, sometimes they want to appear conservative even in their numbers. They want to, for lack of a better word, give the companies an opportunity to beat the numbers when they're producing their forecasts. And so then there's the number that the buy side actually thinks will happen, which can deviate from what the sell side thinks. But the change over time is the significant thing to look at and how that's evolving. And so when you see that in most of these categories that we've looked at, like in the top 20 um, largest advertisers with roughly calendar year ends and who are large advertisers, you generally see stable or slightly better expectations now versus say february before uh the the war in ukraine and uh, before a lot of the concerns we have right now uh, became more uh, prominent um what you generally see though is both growth and you see improved expectations with some exceptions to the downside yeah well, and some of the negatives, I mean, around supply chain issues that are remaining through this year, I think we were, you know, already baked into some extent, correct? And, and we're now exactly. seeing, yeah, um, lockdowns in China being relaxed. So uh, can't know the future, but I guess we can feel a little bit better about it now, um, having looked at some of this research. Exactly. And maybe another important point to to very much the point you, you mentioned the consensus expectations for margins, profit margins, are down, but not by a lot, right? I think that expectations for sustained inflation are higher. The China lockdown issue was certainly an issue uh, for many places. But at the end of the day, margin expectations down a little bit. 
revenue expectations, which were already high, up a little bit more. And, you know, we've already pointed out that consensus expectations on global GDP are something along the lines of what we saw in 2019. So we keep coming back to this point that while there's a lot of people who are really worried about the state of the economy, um, a lot of it almost becomes circular. Um, as you even see today, uh, uh, you know, Elon Musk saying um, he has a super bad feeling um, about uh, <laughs> about how the economy is going to play out. Okay, there are many people with super bad feelings right now. Um, I, I still go back to what Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan said, where he has said that there are storm clouds on the horizon. It could be a hurricane, and you make sure you're prepared for that event. But it could pass. It could be kind of nothing. Risks are out there, they're elevated, they're higher than they were, but there's nothing like a certainty that bad things are going to happen. But don't take our podcast as investment advice, please. <laughs> exactly. But do come back to hear uh, our podcast uh, next week when we'll have, uh, I guess it'll be the penultimate uh, forecast ahead, penultimate podcast ahead of the this year, next year forecasts. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thank you until next week. See you next week. This week, next week is hosted by me, Kate Scott Dawkins, and Brian Weezer. Our producer is Jared Bayman. Our showrunner is Sam Weston. The views and opinions expressed here are our own and are not intended to represent those of Group M or its clients. If you have questions, comments, or requests for future segments, let us know at business.intelligence at groupm.com. <laughs>